You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence 2021, which was to have taken place in San Francisco. This morning, I was both intrigued and impressed by the enthusiastic presentation of Abstract 461 by Megan Criswell, an MD-PhD student from the University of Colorado, who described her elegant studies of autoantibodies from individuals at risk for RA that cross-react with intestinal bacteria. We know from the work of Jose Scher that Prevotella copri is more abundant in feces of patients with new-onset RA who lack shared epitope risk alleles. We also know from the work of the SARA group that rheumatoid factor and IgG anti-CCP antibodies are present in sputum of patients with early RA, first-degree relatives of RA patients, and individuals who are seropositive for an RA-related autoantibody. Ms. Criswell first derived monoclonal antibodies to RA-related antigens from plasma blasts obtained from patients with RA or from individuals at risk for RA. She found that over half of these antibodies reacted with intestinal microbiota in the families Lacnosporaceae and Ruminococcaceae. She then isolated seven strains of Ruminococcaceae subdolagranulum from the feces of an individual at risk for RA and found one strain that stimulated CD4-positive T-cells from RA patients in a DR4-dependent manner. She then fed this strain to mice by gavage in a sterile environment and found that it induced serum IgA production, RA-related autoantibodies, and, to her surprise, joint swelling. It did this even better than Prevotella copri. She then was able to induce joint swelling in other mice by transferring serum to them from mice with arthritis, which required the presence of T and B cells. These findings suggest that this Ruminococcaceae subdolagranulum isolate stimulates formation of mature isolated lymphoid follicles in the intestine, which in turn support IgA production and generate antigen-specific intestinal IgA in germinal centers. This immune response in the gastrointestinal tract then likely prompts a systemic immune response and conversion of mucosal to systemic immunity. The resulting circulating antibodies then may cross-react with RA-relevant self-antigens, which could initiate the joint pathology observed in RA. It will be interesting to learn whether Ruminococcaceae subdolagranulum is a dominant constituent of the microbiome of patients with early RA. Regardless, this elegant translational research study brings us closer to satisfying Cox postulates regarding a microbial etiology for seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. For more coverage of ACR Convergence 2021, go to roomnow.com. I'm Jonathan Kay. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting for Room Now uh, once again uh, for from ACR 21, uh, meant to be in San Francisco, uh, but now virtual, of course. Uh, it's the end of uh, the first day. It's been a great day of conference. Been so much going on. I want to talk a little bit about early RA and the development, and other others will talk a bit about um, the ARIA study, which uh, looks at a batacept 
in patients with MRI findings um, and arthralgias and ACPA positivity without any uh, clinical synovitis. And there's plenty to talk about there. Um, but what I want to talk about is a bit about Gerd Burmester's um, talk. He talked about sequential steps to intercept RA. And um, if you thought the Hench lecture last year on the history of RA treatment was, was elegant, this was really um, beautiful, going through some pretty heavy science, but then also ending some really practical points. And I mean, the heavy science really uh, traversed the, the ideas that um, sit behind the development of systemic autoimmunity. Now, I don't really, and what that means for rheumatoid arthritis. Now, I don't want to kind of go into, the, into depth, but really how that transitions to autoimmune disease, of course, involves all the things that we, we've come to know about over the course of time, citrullination and post-translational modification. Trying, trying to think about what we know about antigens and what we don't know the increasingly understood role of the microbiome, uh, macrophages and fibroblasts, and of course, in Nedjim um, uh, from uh, earlier on this year, um, the prime cells and what that might mean. So it's been an exciting time. But um, after all those heavy um, immunological uh, concepts, um, which possibly aren't necessarily primed for, <laughs> primed for clinical practice right now, he actually highlighted um, what actually had been put together by some of um, some Australian colleagues of mine about um, looking at the evidence, what are 11 ways to reduce your patient's risk from RA? Knowing what we know now, being able to access what we've got now, what can we do about it? So I'm going to go through them for you, 11 ways to stay away from RA. Number one, cease smoking. I think that's uh, pretty, and we've known that for a while. Two, reduce exposure to inhaled silica, dust, and occupational risks. And we've seen increasing data in this space come up and again and again. So I think that's, uh, it's really becoming a stronger and stronger case. Uh, three, maintain a healthy weight. Four, increase leisure time, physical activity. Five, maintain good dental hygiene. Six, uh, maximize breastfeeding if able, and that's benefit, dose-dependent benefit to the mother there. Uh, seven, maximize dietary quality and avoid um, high salt diets. Eight, consume high levels of omega-3 fatty acids and fish. Nine, uh, reduce consumption of um, sugar, sweet and soft drinks. Ten, consume moderate levels of alcohol. And 11, remain vitamin D replete. As evidence behind all of those, and I'm sure there's plenty more to learn, uh, but in terms, if ever, anyone ever asks you what you can do now, there are certainly 11 ways that we can stay away from RA. Now, I need to go away, um, get out from behind my desk from this virtual conference and start working on some of those, but uh, there's going to be plenty more for, um, from room now from this meeting. It's a massive meeting and we've got a great faculty working on some good content. So um, hope you keep on tuning in. Thanks very much. David Liu here from Melbourne, Australia, reporting for a room now from the end of the first day, full day of the conference, of the main program of the conference. Uh, there's been plenty talked about in the rheumatoid arthritis space, but I want to just highlight something which is perhaps um, a little bit uh, not, not neglected, neglected is probably the, well, neglected probably is the right word, and certainly isn't talked about as much as we'd like, and probably not talked about because it's one of those things that we all dread and we can't do much about. And that's fatigue. We know fatigue is common in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory rheumatic diseases. We know it's a big issue and has a massive impact on them and really gets in the way of them achieving the functional goals that they want and um, us achieving uh, the targets we want for our patients. Um, and at the same time, we know that we've got no meds 
uh, that really are proven to, to do any benefit there. And that maybe if there is some benefit from non-pharmacological treatments, uh, we don't necessarily have easy access to them. So all of that in mind, really fatigue something where we need to do a lot more work on. Now, um, that's the context for abstract 0462 uh, from the oral abstracts today, the LIFT study, uh, which was presented by Neil Basu and um, involved uh, colleagues from across the UK there. Um, it was a pragmatic uh, randomised control trial looking at what we could do about fatigue for inflammatory rheumatic disease patients, primarily overwhelmingly rheumatoid arthritis patients, but a few others are scattered in there. So what did it do? And I th it was in the context of COVID and everything's in the context of COVID, but it was remote delivery of um, three, there were three arms, remote delivery of cognitive beha uh, behavioral therapy, uh, exercise program or usual care and compared the three. Um, so this was um, adults with stable inflammatory rheumatic disease and over three months of severe and persisting fatigue. And what we saw is that one year, uh, both the CPT and the exercise program led to clinically significant improvements in fatigue severity, in fatigue impact and global impact outcomes. And that's with a limited number of, of, inter, of, of sessions, um, up to eight sessions and most patients had um, less than that. So to get those kind of real benefits, you know, if we saw those benefits with a medicine, we'd be thinking about registering this. Um, I think a non, we need to try and um, weaponize our non-pharmacological therapies um, to try and do something um, for our patients and their fatigue. And, you know, there's a lot to actually figure out in terms of the details, in terms of what kind of, how many sessions are really needed for the exercise program, which really didn't involve targets and behavioral intervention, how, how much of the CPT is needed, you know, and that's a lot about trying to teach people problem solving and behavioral experimentation and cognitive restructuring. It's not clear how the two of them interact, of course, as well, um, but it's really glad, I'm really glad to see this work has been done. The um, authors are going to be um, publishing some of the details on their website, so hopefully this is the kind of thing that we can roll out right across the world. Um, how we can access this will be the next question, but we need to do something about our patients and their fatigue. For plenty more about rheumatoid arthritis um, and ACR in general, head on down to RoomNow and check out all the great content. Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now, and I have with me my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Jeff Sparks. So hi, Jeff. What do you think of the Hello. meeting? <laughs> it's virtual again. It is virtual it's again been, next year. You know, this is life. Yes. Well, the thing is, well, the good thing is we can see a lot of sessions. It's all archived. I think the hybrid and, you know, the interface is never going away, so... There From you go. here on in, we can uh, rewatch <laughs> our uh, our triumphs and our failures. Yeah. So um, I thought it'd be great to talk about uh, lung now. So what, what's yeah. your impression with what's going on with rheumatic diseases, RA and other rheumatic diseases and the lung and where are we headed? Well, um, in a way, I feel like it's, it's following a similar path as the cardiovascular story where we're seeing that this is a bigger problem uh, beyond just, you know, I think it really started in systemic sclerosis this time, as far as, you know, really being on the radar. Um, and certainly over the past few years, we've been thinking about RAILD. Um, but, you know, myositis is certainly um, contributing as well. Um, and then I think this year, anchor-associated vasculitis, a really uh, provocative abstract that did a careful look to see what the prevalence of 
ILD with an ANCA vasculitis was, and it's about 15%. Um, and this is not the patients that are having pulmonary hemorrhage. This is um, often in the background or even prior to the patients presenting with ANCA vasculitis. Um, and these patients do have an increased risk of mortality. So um, I think this is, you know, spanning different rheumatic diseases and autoimmunity and fibrosis. And, you know, obviously we've got new new drug treatments that might be helpful in these patients. So I think it's really exciting. And, and I, uh, going back to what you're saying, I think it was under-recognized in ANCA vasculitis. And if you think pretty much everyone with ANCA vasculitis has CT, CT imaging if they have a cavity in their lung, but everyone yeah. gets a chest X-ray pretty much. So I think it's been under-recognized. And I, I kind of think that there's, when we go to RA, which is more UAP, although either could have mm-hmm. an SIP or UAP, and we look at uh, Sjogren's and myositis and lupus, that it's higher in myositis than in Sjogren's and lupus, and it's the highest in systemic sclerosis and probably moderately high than in RA. It's one of those things where people do the same better. Well, many don't do better, but the same and stabilize over time mm-hmm. or they go downhill fast or slowly with sometimes small incremental improvement. So when you're looking at a patient, there's two kinds of things that I wonder about. Should we have a way of systematically screening at least high risk patients? That's the first thing. And the second thing is, um, when should we intervene from both immune modulation and later possibly antifibrotic? So big questions for you. Yeah. Lots to say the field is moving pretty fast. Um, you know, from an RA perspective, um, you know, the MUC5B uh, promoter variant has, you know, really taken hold and it's relatively common. It's up to 30% depending on the population. Um, and those patients really have a high risk of developing ILDs at some point throughout their disease course. It may not be right when they're diagnosed. It may be many years later, um, but it does really tell, tell you about sort of a sub-segment of, of RA that might be at risk for that. I think the other development, of course, is the antifibrotics, um, which are, you know, really being used in IPF. And you wonder about um, RAILD, particularly the UIP subtype. So uh, I don't think it's been presented formally yet, but the late breaker abstract of the TRAIL-1 study, really provocative, um, unfortunately did not meet the recruitment goals. I think a lot of it was related to the pandemic. Um, so the overall primary outcome was not met. However, many of the secondary outcomes really did look like this has a really similar trend towards uh, a similar effect as in UIP. Right. Another and interesting that's perfenidone that you're talking about. Perfenidone so we already have approval for an intendimitib. So perfenidone's on on the heels. So I the guess. perfenidone's coming, and then the inbuilt trial looked at nintendinib, Um and uh, there's an abstract, you know, there's already uh, a positive phase three study, uh, the, uh, many of which had autoimmune diseases, uh, many of those had RA. Um, and then there's another abstract. This, I think the criticism of some of these studies is that they do a continuous measure of six minute walk distance and FBC, and certainly the p-values are low, but does it really mean anything? So there was a, there's a nice abstract at this meeting about kind of uh, categorical changes in FBC that really actually mean things. And it really does look like this drug helps patients. Um, yeah. So as far as who to treat and when, that's another question. Yep. So it, that abstract you're referring to, so they looked at 5%, 5 to 10 or greater than 10% difference in FBC. And each time um, 
not quite double, but almost double the amount of patients getting the um, less worsening, so to speak. So half as many patients worsening on intended than placebo, yep. looking at um, basically um, ILD with a pulmonary fibrosis type pattern and RA and some of the other CTDs from the inbuild study. So yeah, yep. I think I think treatment is going to change. I think we are probably going to introduce immune suppression in many of these diseases earlier, as well as treating the underlying signs and symptoms of the disease, and then thinking of um, when's the right timing in each individual to add an anti antifibrotic because obviously it's not for everyone. Little mild uh, NSIP, no honeycombing, stable for six years might be stable for a long time. So I think one last thing to close off, and I wonder if it's mm -hmm. that MUC5 gene. Um, <laughs> I have seen the last two weeks, two different patients. One has dermatomyositis, a bit of a scleroderma overlap, but mostly dermato. And the other is RA and in both women. And in both of them, they have ILD that's been progressive. And both of them had a parent who died of IPF. So I think wow. we're going to see those associations more so. Yeah. Yeah, it's a common variant. Um, and uh, in our biobank, we, we actually tested everyone with RA for the MUC5B variant. So it was over a thousand patients and, you know, around 20% had this MUC5B variant. And, you know, confirming the other studies, we saw you know, nearly a fourfold increased risk for RALD based on just one, one single SNP, uh, this yeah, MUC5B amazing. promoter variant. Amazing. Yeah. So I think you need to follow your work, Jeff, and follow us on Room Now. And I uh, have my Twitter. Jeff has a Twitter as well. So you can yep. follow us on that. So it's great. Lung Now. This is Lung Now, right? Lung Now. Lung Now. <laughs> you got it. All right. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Hi. My name is John Giles. I'm a rheumatologist and a clinical researcher, primarily focused on rheumatoid arthritis uh, from Columbia University in New York City. And I'm speaking to you today from the first day of ACR uh, convergence meeting on uh, November the 6th. And focus today is on TNF inhibitors for this talk. Uh, we actually didn't have all that much specifically on TNF inhibitors today because there were no uh, RA treatment poster sessions or, or oral sessions today. But there was some indirect uh, talk about TNF inhibitors. I think the the most pertinent to uh, everyone's clinical practice right now was one of the plenary abstracts, and that was uh, plenary number 457, uh, which was uh, the investigation of uh, COVID vaccine responses in people uh, taking uh, various forms of immunosuppressants, one of which was TNF inhibitors. The overall message from that abstract was that uh, in general, uh, compared with the other types of immunomodulating medications that people taking TNF inhibitors generally had uh, fairly good responses to COVID vaccine. Their overall response was only uh, a few fold lower than people not taking any of these medications. And, and compared with say uh, B cell therapies or uh, Janus kinase inhibitors uh, was actually quite good. But if you looked deeper into the abstract uh, and some of the uh, graphs that were presented, you could actually see that the response across uh, the TNF inhibitor group was actually quite, quite wide. So there were uh, quite a few anti-TNF treated patients who had very low responses in, in that group um, and, and some who had pretty normal responses. So I think that, that the lesson here for us is that 
um, it's not impossible for our patients uh, on anti-TNF therapy uh, to not mount an adequate response to uh, COVID vaccination. And, and we shouldn't think about this group of patients as, as being necessarily protected. And of course, the issue that a lot of patients who take TNF inhibitors are also on um, uh, anti-metabolites like methotrexate, leflunamide. They also may take some prednisone, that there might be some combined effects uh, in, in these patients. One other issue that was also um, slightly of a concern in that uh, abstract was concerning that there may be a reduced um, protection from some of the variant strains of COVID, such as the Delta variant, although the numbers were quite small. Um, and it seemed like TNF inhibitors uh, seemed to have the least protection against the uh, Delta variant in terms of neutralizing antibodies. However, uh, in terms of my experience uh, with, uh, with our patients and in an area in which the Delta variant for months has been the, the uh, predominant uh, COVID strain, really haven't seen that played out. And maybe that is just uh, a, an element of um, just the small numbers in this uh, particular sample. So I think on the whole, I think we can uh, be uh, very happy uh, with our anti-TNF treated patients and, and uh, counsel them that their response to COVID vaccine is, is likely uh, better compared with other types of uh, immunosuppressants. But I don't think we can be complacent that they are as protected as uh, someone in the general population who's on, not on any of these medications. So that's my takeaway uh, about TNF inhibitors from the first day of uh, ACR Convergence 2021. And uh, hope to be able to talk to you again tomorrow about more uh, abstracts related to TNF inhibitors uh, in the treatment of our patients.